Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. This is a very special episode being recorded on Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. It's a very special episode because, for multiple reasons. One, this is our 50th episode. It is our 50th episode, and we debuted the podcast about 53 weeks ago. I've missed out a couple of times just because I've had to, I think once because I had to work, once because I was sick, and once because I was doing the uh, Frozen Finals for the Eastern Hockey League. Now, uh, when we started this podcast, well, really, I'm the only one working on it. When I started this podcast, I did it because, you know, I was in a weird, partially because I was in a weird place where the pandemic had really had started to shut everything down in the US in March specifically March 12th because i remember that uh, if you have not listened to this podcast regularly or at least have not listened to the uh, the first episode on March 12th when everything shut down i was uh, scheduled to go into new york city and do play by play for Seton Hall men's basketball against, I believe it was Butler, in the quarterfinals of the Big East men's basketball tournament at Madison Square Garden. It would have been the first time I'd ever called a game at the Garden, uh, and I've been going there for years. And it was at about noon that day during the uh, St. John's Creighton game at halftime, the, the first quarterfinal game played, that everything was shut down, that the NBA decided to shut down, and that kind of triggered everything else. It's from uh, the, the response, not just from sports, but through all things across the country, the uh, COVID-19 had sprung up from some people. It seems to be China in December of 2019. That's why it's COVID-19 as opposed to COVID-20 when the year it really uh, hit hardest. And, well, I was devastated. And, uh, and, look, you know, there are some people you don't... You, look, there were some upsides to, to not having to go into class for the last two months. But, uh, I mean, there, you, don't want to, you don't want to see everybody that you, go in, that you interact with. But uh, it was difficult having to, uh, to postpone graduation for so long. And it was split up so I could, uh, into multiple sections, I could see some of the people I wanted to see. And, uh, but, but it was the, the biggest, the biggest thing, the toughest thing I would say, besides not being able to, to really say a proper goodbye to a campus, to, to WSOU, to Seton Hall, and to all, uh, more, most importantly, to all the, the good people there was not being able to call the NCAA tournament because my friend and and then roommate and sports manager Dalton Allison as long as one of the as well as well as one of the assistants and one of my very good friends Jose Feliciano and I uh, would have probably would have called at, at least a game in the NCAA tournament and it's and it's Seton Hall very well I honestly believe, and I, I don't. I don't just say this because I went to Seton Hall and I called games for them. I honestly believe Seton Hall could have won the national championship, and and we'll never find out if that really could have happened. But uh, it, 
you dare to dream. And so, so I was in a weird place because I had graduated in May, and by the time this was the last week of October, by the time that really the beginning of October had rolled around, I was unemployed, and it was the start of a new academic year, an academic year where everybody was shut down, but a new academic year nonetheless, and that's that's when I really felt kind of closed off, closed off from the world like I really should have been getting out there, even though we were not even close to being back to normal, no vaccine, nothing. So I decided by the end of the month that by by the day after the World Series ended, I was going to start this podcast. I wasn't sure what exactly I was going to do, but I was going to start this podcast. And I was grateful I could not have done it without a number of the people at uh, my friends from WSOU and Seton Hall, Wilner Lewis in particular, Heaven Hill is another one, Dalton and Jose I mentioned before, uh, Michael Daly. A number of people, because Anchor, the the tool I use to to make this podcast, is what they use to make theirs, and I'm, and I'm very grateful to uh, to the people at Anchor as well. I decided that I did not want to create uh, to to monetize the podcast, and I think that's just because I wasn't sure how long it would run. That's part of it, and then also, you know, I, I think I was just hoping I would I would get a another I get an actual job, and I and I was hoping that I, I I could kind of be more true to myself. I could be more flexible with the format. So I still have not monetized the podcast. I don't know if I ever will. I don't know how long this is going to run. But the day after the World Series, when the Dodgers beat the Rays, I started. I've gone 50 episodes. Uh, in that time, I have gotten uh, not really a full-time job, but I'll, I'll do two or three games, hopefully, per week. It varies with the New Jersey 87s, a junior hockey team in the Eastern Hockey League in, uh, in Monmouth County, New Jersey. I've been fortunate enough to be their rinkside reporter, thanks to my friend Anthony DePaolo, who graduated from Seton Hall right before I got in. He's our play-by-play -play man, and it's because of that that I was able to do the Frozen Finals, the EHL's final tournament in Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia, in March. And I've been very fortunate. And this podcast has been a constant. A constant for the last year, a very... Got a very, very difficult year, year and a half now, really coming up on two years. And, and now I really just have to say that, well, thank you for, for you for listening. And I, I realized that, you know, this is not... You know, the Joe Rogan experience where, where a ton of people are going to listen. I, I realize this is a smaller, much smaller scale. It's not the height of podcasting in terms of listenership. But I am grateful to you that you have listened.
And I know that I'm very proud of what I've been able to do with this podcast, but I also know that I am cap- that this podcast is capable of more, regardless of monetization, I would say. And if you know about the podcast, you pri- odds are you hear about it from Facebook or Twitter. My Facebook or my Twitter, that's usually where I share it after the podcast is uploaded. And I just want to encourage you to uh, just tell me what I can do. Give your comments. Tell me what I can do. Anything constructive will help, and I will take it into acknowledgement and hopefully see if we can tweak a couple of things to to see if, if we can make it better for you make it more enjoyable, more entertaining, and more insightful. So I I really encourage you to do that. I'm at ChrisRusso98 on Twitter, or if you want to find me on Facebook as well. So that's that's the story there over the last year, year and a week. And now we are moving, hopefully, well, in a way this pandemic has been made permanent by some people who, uh, well, perhaps by some people who did not get vaccinated. And again, you have the right to do, I've said it before, I'll say it again, you have the right not to do so. But it's kind of a point where we're just in limbo and it's strange, but we've, we've certainly moved out of the height of the pandemic. We're still in it. We, it's, it's quite possible we may always be in it, in some way, shape, or form. But we've moved out. We've moved out of the, the worst of it, I would say. And now here we are, and a year and a week later, we're back to talking about the World Series, a, a very important World Series in that for many reasons. Let's start with it. Of course, the Atlanta Braves win the World Series for the first time since 1995, fourth championship in franchise history. They won one as the Boston Braves in 1914. They won one as the Milwaukee Braves in 1957, and one as the Atlanta Braves in 1995. Before this year, 2021, they defeat the Houston Astros four games to two, winning game six in Houston. This is the eighth consecutive World Series one on the road. The Giants over the Royals, Game 7 and 14. The Royals over the Mets, Game 5 and 15. Cubs over Cleveland, Game 7 and 16. The Astros over the Dodgers, Game 7 and 17. Red Sox over the Dodgers, Game 5 and 18. The Nationals over the Astros, Game 7 and 19. And the Dodgers were officially, I believe, the home team in 2020 in Game 6 against the Rays. But of course, because of covid Everything was changed. We did not have crowds, I believe, until the World Series last year. And that game, that series was played at Globe Life Park in Texas. And uh, the last team, somehow the last team to win the World Series at home, the Boston Red Sox in 2013. It was the first time that the World Series had been won at Fenway Park in 95 years, dating back to 1918. Brian Snicker. Talk about a guy who is so deserving of a world championship. 
Brian Snicker in his 45th year with the Braves organization. He, I did not realize until watching this game last night that, I believe it was, I don't know if it was Ken Rosenthal or Joe Buck, somebody said that, I thought I heard that Brian Snicker had been demoted three times as a coach in the Braves organization. This guy went from player and then being, and then converted into coach by Hank Aaron, who was a higher up in the Braves organization at the time, player to coach, eventually to minor league manager, finally to major league manager, and essentially the protege to Bobby Cox, even with Freddie Gonzalez having his stint in between their runs, their tenures. And I think it was Kevin Burkhart who mentioned, or, or Ken Rosenthal as well, who mentioned the sacrifices from Snickers' family about how for many years he'd be on the road February through October, uh, the sacrifices of his wife, his, his kids, I, I, I would think uh, grandkids, and uh, how difficult it is. Because at least, you know, in Major League Baseball, it's more limited because you're at home for half the year and you use air travel to make it a lot more convenient. But you think about it, minor leagues, think about how much bus travel there is, how much uh, perhaps train travel, how much uh, things are extended. And, and you're living in kind of weirder, smaller places. So it, it, I can only imagine what that life is like. And all of that paid off for Brian Snicker. Mr. In a way, Mr. Brave. Obviously, Hank Aaron's really going to be Mr. Brave. But Brian Snicker's a guy who's been in the organization for 45 years, and he finally wins. He becomes the second oldest manager to win his first World Series title, the oldest being Jack McKeon at age 72 in 2003 with the Florida Marlins. McKeon will turn, I believe, 91 later this year, and he's still going strong. I actually got to meet Jack McKeon for a moment because we have a... I've spent some vacation time down near the Palm Beach area, and in Jupiter, the Marlins and the Cardinals have a facility down there. So I actually met Jack McKeon when I was fairly young when he took over the Marlins again, actually around 2000, I want to say 2010, 2011. Uh, Could not not have been nicer. He's actually just sitting, kind of like any other Florida retiree, just sitting in a golf cart in the middle of the the complex. But uh, that's just an amazing accomplishment for Snicker, and, and as well as Dusty Baker, because this is kind of like when Tom Coughlin and Bill Belichick met each other the second time in the Super Bowl, or even, I think after that, probably Belichick and Pete Carroll. Belichick Arians might be the oldest head coaching... Ma- no, not Belichick Arians, uh, but but Belichick Carroll uh, might be the oldest coaching matchup now in a Super Bowl. And it would have been Dusty Baker who would have been the oldest manager, second oldest manager... Joe went for his first time, kind of like uh, another one, Lovey Smith and Tony Dungy. Uh, who, it was the first two African-American coaches to reach the Super Bowl, head coaches to reach the Super Bowl, and they got there in the same year. Whoever won was going to be the guy. We were talking about Bobby Cox. Uh, John Smoltz spoke about uh, Bobby Cox's health, uh, made it seem like he doesn't really, uh, I did not realize he doesn't, I guess, leave the, the house too often, doesn't make too many public appearances, I, I guess, anymore. 
He is, I believe, 90, or going to be 90, and, but he still still pays a lot of attention to the Braves. And I, I'm the tough quote to hear was, I, I think Smoltz said something to the extent of, win one more for Bobby. And I was thinking, well, maybe win multiple more, but I, I really hope Bobby Cox is okay, but it's... It's ha- I'm happy to see that he is probably very happy right now, you know, regardless of who you may root for. And it is so big to win one for him. Plus the fact that John Smoltz, even though he's a broadcaster, you know, in the booth, he's got to stay neutral and did a very good job of that in this series, really mentioned the importance of, you know, Joe Buck mentioned the importance of Smoltz being there when they won in 95, helping them win and then being in the booth for them to win the next time. So I, I, I hope the best for Bobby Cox, and I hope he can really enjoy this one. And we talk about people who were in poor health, unfortunately. The Braves win. What a year for them to win. They win for the first time in 26 years, and the timing could not be really more appropriate as they win in the aftermath of, of Hank Aaron and Phil Negro's passings. I mean, you know, we talked about it before, but Aaron, yeah, Babe Ruth is the greatest player ever, but Hank Aaron is the greatest home run hitter ever. I mean, well, maybe Josh Gibson, we don't, but Hank Aaron is at least certified as the best home run hitter ever by probably most fans. Phil Necro, the great knuckleballer, who both guys who made such an imprint on this game. And I mentioned it in the last podcast I know it's a bit of a stretch, but it is true. It is appropriate for the Braves to win over the Astros in Houston in the aftermath of Hank Aaron's passing when Hank Aaron was a man who apparently was quietly irked, you can even say, even say angered, by not by Barry Bonds breaking his home run record, by the, but by the way he broke, or at least allegedly broke, his home run record. And a a team with absolute class, an organization with absolute class, really one of, you talk about well-run organizations, obviously you think about the Yankees, you know, you think about the Yankees, they they won the most, but organizations that even though they may not win as much as the Yankees have as consistently, Think about the St. Louis Cardinals, the San Francisco Giants, a lot of the, the old NL teams, St. Louis Cardinals, San Francisco Giants, yeah, the Yankees, yeah, the Red Sox, the the Dodgers, the Braves, organizations that are just so respected, well-run, always competitive, great farm systems, and they just treat their, their players very well. And the Atlanta, the Atlanta Braves, again, are one, are one of those organizations that, you know, they won one championship in the 90s, but they won five pennants, a team that does things the right way, and uh, a team with a great hierarchy. And the Atlanta Braves were able to win, and they did it against a team with some players who obviously, let's put it frankly, defiled the game. Of course, there are a number of 
players who are no longer on the, the Astros that were on that 17 team. I mean, I, I keep seeing the, the thing about Brian. I remember seeing the thing about Brian McCann telling Carlos Beltran just to knock off all the, the, the camera work and all the cheating and things like that. A lot of those guys are gone, and you can't even. I, I wouldn't even necessarily blame the the pitching, uh, the pitchers, for that scandal. Except, you know, I guess as bystanders. But there are a few, there are a handful of those guys left, and you know, Altuve, Bregman, Gurriel, Correa, and and Marwin Gonzalez returned to the team. But it, it, it's pro. Some people will say that good triumphed over evil. I, I will bet that, and again, I I take no pride or pleasure in reporting that. But the the a lot of Americans will probably take a lot of pride in not the Braves winning, but the Astros losing. The Braves winning, however, is so much more impressive when you consider they lost Charlie Morton, who was. I would say probably their best starter, the most experienced starter for sure, their most clutch postseason starter, who obviously, regardless of what the Astros did in 2017, pitched four shutout innings out of the bullpen on the road, or pitched four innings of, I think, one run ball out of the bullpen on the road in Game 7 against the Dodgers in the 2017 World Series, was so clutch with the Rays in the postseason, was good with Pittsburgh, and had done a lot for... Atlanta, and they lose him after what two and a third innings in Game One to a broken leg. Mike Soroka, a great young pitcher, outstanding near the top of the rotation. They lose him in the middle of the year. Ronald Acuna Jr., one of the best players in baseball, not only the best player on the Braves, but probably I think you could argue a top five player in baseball. Great all-around talent, five-tool player. They lose him in the middle of the summer. They lose him before the trade deadline. Marcelo Zuna uh, lost due to, uh, of course, the, uh, I believe, domestic violence allegations. That's a different story, unfortunately, but uh, they lose him because, obviously, he's a very talented ball player and a very good hitter. But, no, the Braves, and obviously it helped that the Braves played in a what turned out to be the worst division in baseball, even though I and a lot of other people, like a lot of other people, thought it was going to be the best. They won 88 games in the National League East against a, a Mets team that really faltered during the summer, a Phillies team that, that underperformed, a Nationals team that kind of was out of it from the get-go and ended up trading a lot of guys at the deadline, including perhaps the future of their franchise in Trey Turner. And then you got a Marlins team that really surprisingly under really underwhelmed me after a great short 2020 season getting to the playoffs and winning a series. But the Braves survived and got in with 88 wins. Whether that's fair or not, doesn't matter. They're, they got in. Even though they would have... By a different system, they would have been the road team, but they didn't win. They won the fewest games of any playoff team. They didn't have to play in a wild card game. They took one out of two in Milwaukee. They ended up taking two in Atlanta. 
And even though the Dodgers won 106 games in the regular season because the Braves won their division, they got home field over the Dodgers in the NLDS, or NLCS. But to their credit, they really took advantage of home field because they won the first two games in Atlanta, and then they went out and stole a game in Los Angeles and finished off the Dodgers in six. And then they did not, but they did not have home field against the Astros, and they took them out in game one, came back to Atlanta with a split, took the next two, I kind of blew it in game five, really, they, after that grand slam by Duvall early on, but then they go into Houston and beat them 7 to nothing to end their season. And I will say, as much credit as Brian, Sn- Brian Snicker deserves so much credit just for winning 88 games, even in, even in, in that, that bad a division, but without Acuna, without Soroka, without Ozuna for, for most of the year. He deserves so much credit for that. But Alex Anthopoulos also deserves a ton of credit for having faith in the team and having enough faith to make moves of the deadline to get Jock Peterson, Adam Duvall, Jorge Soler, and Eddie Rosario, four outfielders, all of whom made massive playoff contributions. Peterson, with the Pearls, was a rallying cry for the team and was so good off the bench, especially in the division series against Milwaukee. Uh, Duvall, who homered twice in the World Series, including that Grand Slam in Game 5. Jorge Soler ends up winning World Series MVP, and Eddie Rosario, uh, really a, a, a... Diamond in another guy who's a diamond in the rough, really. He and again, I don't know how he's going to be able to. He's not going to be able to sign all these guys. These guys, a couple of these guys, might have been rentals, but the core is still there, and they're going to get Acuna back next year, and they're going to get Soroka back next year, and and probably Morton, I believe. I don't think any of those guys are free agents. I mean, as to Azuna, I don't know, but the rest of those guys are a big enough improvement. And uh, Rosario won NLCS MVP and tied a postseason series record for hits. And they didn't even go seven. So what a job by Alex Anthopoulos. So reminiscent of that combination of Bobby Cox and John Scherholz for so many years, leading the Braves to five pennants and a world championship throughout the 90s. And the Braves, though again, the Dodgers should probably be the favorite next year at this point, the way too early favorite. The Braves are here to compete no matter what happens with Freeman because he is a free agent. We'll see what happens. The Braves will be competitive for years to come in the division or otherwise. Jorge Soler, named World Series MVP, finishes with three homers. Six RBIs, including what turned out to be the game-winning three-run home run in Game 6. Uh, had that big home run, that, that game-tying home run after going back-to-back uh, in Game 4. And, of course, became the first player ever to lead off a World Series with a home run in Game 1. Guy who really caught fire. As a matter of fact, going back to Hank Aaron for a moment, it's kind of appropriate that the Braves, I I thought I heard that the Braves had scored 71% of their runs via the home run in this World Series. Uh, Rather surprising for a National League team, but uh, still very impressive. They hit at the right time. That's 
That, that, that was kind of, that's always kind of the point of the Braves is they might not be the most they might not be the most powerful team in the National League or in baseball, but they will hit at the right time in order to win. But it's appropriate that set, that that higher percentage uh, of home runs contributed to their uh, runs when uh, uh, when this series this this year was obviously dedicated to Hank Aaron. Uh, Soler, only the second Cuban-born player ever to be named World Series Most Valuable Player, the other being Levon Hernandez in 1997 with the Florida Marlins. And obviously that is uh, that is a big deal if you are, really if you are from Cuba, because Cuba, because so many guys, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, at times it's been like a stereotypical story where Guys have swum, uh, I believe swum from Cuba 90 miles, you know, to get to Miami. That's always the, uh, that's the story because of uh, Cuban-American relations. And uh, just be, just to be able to get here, just to be able to get here, let alone win World Series MVP is such an accomplishment. He, He won the World Series with the Cubs in 2016 did not get a lot of playing time that year. Did the year before in their run to the NLCS. Had some big moments in the division series against the Cardinals in that postseason. And then he went to the Royals. Had Always had massive power. He broke, at that point broke, but it's, he's now tied with Salvador Perez. The record for Royals, single, uh, single season home run record for the Kansas City Royals with 48 so um, th- this is a guy who kind of went under the wire a little bit when you play in a market like Kansas City, and this is after they won the World Series in 2015. They have not come, they have not sniffed the playoffs since then, and, and just being a a guy who was off the bench barely for a very loaded Cubs team, it's a great signing by Anthopoulos to, to find such great talent. In Jorge Soler. Talk about the pitching. Max Freed went six shutout innings in game six. And even though Brian Snicker is old school, he opted to pull him after six innings despite having a shutout and, and throwing 74 pit only 74 pitches. I would have kept him in, but that's uh, that's just my nature. But could have gone longer, but pulled after 74 pitches and an outstanding start. In this World Series, he was as important as any starting pitcher in this postseason for the Braves. When you consider, particularly when you consider Morton's injury, the bullpen was so crucial. The bullpen pretty much took over every fourth game. With AJ Minter, Tyler Matzik, and Will Smith in particular, they reminded me so much of the 2015 Royals. With let's see, I think it was well. It would be Kelvin Herrera, Wade Davis, and Greg Holland. I don't think in that. I don't think in chronolog- I don't believe in chronological order, going seven, seven, eight, nine. But if you got a pitcher to go six innings, and you go to that, you go to go, to go those three guys, and you've got, you probably got to win. Outstanding job by them. Ron Washington, another one. Ron Washington finally gets a World Series title. That's a guy who is really another baseball lifer. 
I mean, we all know he was the manager for the Rangers, great teams who reached the World Series in consecutive years in 2010 and 2011. Probably should have won in 2011. Nelson Cruz is a few feet, maybe less, from catching that what would turn out to be the tying triple by David Fries down at the Cardinals last out in the six, in game six. But a guy who did a great job in Texas, did a great job as a coach in Oakland. Of course, the, you know if you ever see Moneyball, there's the famous line. Yeah, of course you can play first. Uh, of course it's easy to play first. Tell him, Wash. It's incredibly hard. Watch that movie and. Uh, if you have not seen it, because the portrayal of Ron Washington is so great. A guy who struggled with addiction, actually, in Texas, got in big trouble for it. And a guy who, as a baseball lifer, finally gets a World Series title as a coach for the Braves. And it's it's only it's you know, it's so impressive that it's kind of appropriate that on Election Day, in a still divided America... Much of the country, so split, much of the country, I'm willing to bet, was rooting against what they may consider a villain in the Houston Astros. And again, that's not, you know, it's not like, you know, it's in, it's inherently evil. Everything about that organization is wrong. No, it's not It's not true. There are so many people, and so, and some many guys have, have paid their penance. Some people might say otherwise, but... Those guys have faced a lot of flack. They faced the music this year. They had to go up against fans. Finally, after a year off, there are so many guys who were not on that 17 team who were so important. And give them credit for getting to the World Series and getting there without any question. There is no person on with the Astros organization for whom you can have more respect, though, than Dusty Baker. Another baseball life. What a year of baseball lifers in this World Series. Dusty Baker got to the World Series for the first time since 2002 when he managed the San Francisco Giants. You remember his son Brandon, who I think was four at the time. He's a bat boy being picked up in the middle of the play by J.T. Snow in, I can't remember if it was game four or five of that World Series, and they ended up losing to the Angels in seven. But a baseball lifer who does not get the credit he deserves for what he did in San Francisco, albeit with Barry Bonds there, with the Cubs, albeit with Sammy Sosa there, and then there was the Bartman thing and everything that happened, for what he did in Cincinnati, getting them to the playoffs when they hadn't been in about 15 years, for what he did in Washington, and building a culture around them early in Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg's career, even if Davey Martinez was the guy who finally won them a playoff series and won the World Series. Dusty Baker's a guy who who wins in some way, shape, or form everywhere he goes. And taking over this team was maybe the biggest challenge of all. And last year, he got them within a win of going to the World Series. They came back from down three games to none against the Rays. Obviously, they benefited from not having fans around, at least in road ballparks, but they, they came very close and challenged the status quo last year in the face of anger from a lot of fans. And then this year, with fans in the building, and sometime in the middle of the summer, a full house in every building, they were able to run the table. I would say that the Rays were probably the favorite to win the pennant, 
they the Astros probably benefited from the Red Sox knocking out the Rays in the division series, but the Astros made mincemeat of the Chicago White Sox. They took out the Red Sox after trailing two games to one, and they got to the World Series. And on top of that, they they took they made it a competitive World Series, getting all the way to six games. Kudos to to Dusty Baker on a fantastic year for him. The Astros got to the World Series without garbage cans, without any alleged buzzers or, or cameras, and without many of the guys who were there in 2017. It, they, they, got, they got there fairly, and they deserve to be there. I will say, although he did not produce whatsoever in the World Series, and that, and that made a huge difference, Jordan Alvarez was by far the Astros' most productive hitter, and I would say, I would say, and I don't just say this because he was not on the 17 team, he is definitely their most dangerous hitter as a power hitter or otherwise. Great pure hitter. They would not have gotten past the Boston Red Sox if not for him. MVP is a very appropriate term for him in the ALCS. A guy who is so dangerous with that, I would say, kind of kind of short porch in right, and will be very important for this organization to this organization for years to come. Carlos Correa, obviously rumored to be leaving, maybe likely to be leaving in free agency. I feel like the Astros could probably pay him, but even if he leaves, even if Zach Greinke leaves, he's going into free agency. Even if Justin Verlander leaves, who apparently I believe is also going into free agency, even if all three of those guys, or some combination, go in free agency, this team will be competitive next year. They'll probably be fine, especially because of the pitching of Framber Valdez, Leori Garcia, and Jose Urquidy. Urquidy pitched very well in relief in this World Series, and he can probably pitch well again as a starter. But Valdez, look, they were inconsistent, I would say. But when Valdez and Garcia in particular were on, they were dominant. That's why the Astros can make some noise. And I don't mean garbage cans. I, I didn't even think about that one until now. But can actually make some noise in the American League next year and for years to come, even if they lose a few of their major stars, because they have a very good core. They have a very good core, and if they have Dusty Baker, they'll be, they, they will be, again, scary. That does it for our World Series coverage, but before we head to a break, there is one more baseball-related story I do want to discuss. Uh, sadly, Jerry Remy passed away at the age of 68 this past week after a battle with cancer. Jerry, of course, even if you are a, a baseball fan outside of New England, you may, you may know Jerry, but if you don't, Jerry was a Boston-area native, played for the Angels for a couple years in the 70s, eventually came to the Red Sox, played a key role in that team that uh, made it to the playoffs in 78, or that one-game playoff in 78 with Bucky Dent, was beloved by Red Sox fans, really the hometown hero. Good good left-handed hitter, good pure hitter. And later, of course, known much better as a broadcaster for the Red Sox for 
I don't know the exact number, but I believe about 30 years with Nesson, the New England Sports Network, and uh, you know, re- really a, a tough loss for uh, for the new for the city of Boston, for the New England region, and for everybody in baseball. One of the most beloved baseball, fi- one of if not the most beloved baseball figure in New England, and and certainly one of them across the country. Uh, you know, God knows it's got to be tough for so many guys who have worked with him from uh, Don Orsillo, who uh, the play-by-play guy for the Red Sox until he joined the took that same role with the Padres a couple of years ago. From him to you know, Joe Stiglione, who's done the radio for Boston for years, to I mean Dennis Eckersley, who has has worked with Nesson for a long time. I know Hazel May used to work with Nesson. Sean McDonough's worked on the radio side. The owners, uh, the owners and, and executives, John Henry, Larry Lacino, Tom Warner, so many people impacted by this, and it, it's really just difficult loss for a guy who lot of, who brought a lot of joy to Boston for a nut for thirty, forty, some odd, some odd summers. Um, I've got friends who are uh, Sox fans, you know, and. It is, though I don't live in the area, I don't get Nesson, you've got to know how big an impact that guy had on the game, on broadcasting, and just uh, just just making people happy. So, uh, rest in peace, Jerry Remy, Jerry Remy a, a life well lived, even if cut a little short. We'll take a break, we'll come back, and we will talk about some of the NFL headlines of the week. Later on, we're going to talk about Joel Quenville stepping down as the Panthers head coach and a couple of major injuries in the NHL. That is all when we return on Sports in the Waiting Room. All right, we are back and we are discussing the NFL. We'll start with a Thursday night game between the then 6-1 Packers and the then 7-0 Cardinals. Packers defeat the Cardinals by a score of 24-21. And it was a night where the Cardinals obviously could not produce too much offensively, but it was their mistakes that made the biggest difference. It was the muffed punt by Moore, first off, leads to three points for the Packers on a field goal. That's a three-point swing right there. And then the Packers put six men deep on third and long, at least six men deep on third and long. It wasn't like a major blitz. On third and long, deep in the Cardinals' end, and the pass rush still is able to pressure Murray into a pick, which eventually leads to a touchdown. There's another seven points right there. Uh, was not a particularly strong game for the Cardinals, but they handed Green Bay ten points. And it wasn't a particularly strong game for Aaron Rodgers, I would say, either. Didn't have his best game, but he didn't throw any picks. And I will give him credit because he also was without Devontae Adams and Robert Tunyon, of course, unfortunately done for the year uh, with that uh, ACL injury. Uh, the, the big big thing is, though, the Packers, uh, the Cardinals still had an opportunity to win this game late, despite all the mistakes they'd made. Deep in the red zone, you figure they're probably going to for- at least force overtime, if not win it right there. I don't know what A.J. Green is thinking on that route. 
And it's not even like he goes to the wrong place. He's just looking. He's just looking uh, in the wrong place. And we're actually going to have to transition here and talk about something different because, again, we don't. Obviously, I don't do this live, but it's kind of appropriate with the with the reaction that I just got the information that Buster Posey is going to retire. Uh, he apparently will retire tomorrow, Thursday, November 4th, 2021. And what a career this guy, I mean, he's only played 12 years, which maybe is not a lot, but this guy has to be a Hall of Famer, I would think. Just pulling up his stats here, well, for, I mean, the one stat that's most important is that he was a catcher for three World Series championship teams, in a five-year stretch, and that, that and that was all within the first six seasons of his career. A good, a decent power-hitting catcher, 158 home runs over 12 seasons, 729 RBIs, a career 302 hitter, manned over 1,300 games, nearly 1,400 games, was the league's MVP, Back in, I believe, I believe him had it down as being, yeah, I believe league's MVP back in 2012. Career on base of 390. That 2012 season, he had, for a catcher, these are really good, these are great numbers 24 homers, 103 RBIs, a 336 batting average, 408 on base, less than 100 strikes. He never struck out more than. 96 times in his career. Uh, just a, a, a great postseason hitter. A, a fantastic catcher. I mean, somebody had to manage such a great rotation with, over the years, Madison Bumgarner, who's one of the best pitchers of his generation and probably the best playoff pitcher of his generation. Uh, Ryan Vogelsong, uh, later on Jake Peavy, Tim Hudson, Barry Zito, Tim Lincecum. And this is the guy who who managed that whole that whole rotation. You know Sergio Romo and Brian Wilson in the in the bullpen. And uh, this guy is going to go down as at least a top two catcher in the history of one of the greatest organizations in the history of Major League Baseball and in the history of sports in the San Francisco Giants. Uh, the, the only other one I can think of at the moment is uh, Roger uh, Bresnahan, who was on the Giants long, long time ago. This is the New York Giants, and I mean the like like Christy Mathewson era New York Giants. That's the only other guy of whom I can think at this exact moment. But he's got to be at least best nationally catcher of his generation. I don't know if I could technically put... I don't know if I could technically put Joe Maurer and he in the same generation, but this guy meant so much to the game of baseball. Um, we all know he left in 2020, took the year off because of obviously COVID concerns, and his wife and he had just adopted twins. Uh, but really a, a great career for Buster Posey, and credit to him for hanging up. He's going to hang him up at age, let's see, 34. I mean, for a catcher, that's actually a pretty ripe old age, even now. 
but uh, congratulations to him on a fine career, and and he gave it one more really good ride with the Giants in 2021. I don't know where they go from here. A team that won 107 games that got knocked out, but they have so many memories from uh, Buster Posey. Right, so back, back to the NFL here. Again, we were saying I have no idea what A.J. Green was thinking, but because it's not even like he was running the wrong route. He just basically turned around, and he was just looking around. He was looking around as if he had no idea what he was doing. It's maybe at that point that you also question why you're targeting A.J. Green as opposed to DeAndre Hopkins or even maybe Dan Arnold. But And again, I wouldn't put the game on entirely on A.J. Green. They made a lot of mistakes, but that's it. So now the Cardinals and the Packers are each at 7-1. and It's going to be interesting this week when the Packers take on the Chiefs as we have found out that Aaron Rodgers has tested positive with COVID, so Jordan Love will get his first career start. It'll be in Kansas City. I'm actually going to talk about Chiefs-Giants a little later on, and even though the Chiefs won, I probably would have said that the Packers would be big favorites in this game until I saw that Jordan Love would be playing, so I don't really know what to think. I'd probably say the, the, the Chiefs should win, but again, first start, we haven't really seen anything of Jordan Love yet. But the Packers and Cardinals are each at 7-1. Packers have the tiebreaker. So the Cardinals will not have an easy go of it. I mentioned last week, Cardinals will not have an easy go of it down the stretch, but they still have a very good opportunity uh, to uh, to finish with the best record in football so long as they can limit the mistakes that they made against Green Bay. On the other, In another part of the NFC West, Von Miller traded to the Rams in exchange for a second-round pick and a third-round pick. Considering the off-field baggage that comes with him and his, in addition to his age, that's not a terrible deal, I would say, for the Broncos, a team that's kind of in the midst of a rebuild. They can take those draft picks, and they'll probably be low for how good the Rams are, but still second and third, not terrible. And they got so much out of Von Miller, 110 and a half sacks over 10 years, becoming maybe the best linebacker of his generation, winning Super Bowl MVP, being so crucial to that 2015 team, and helping, you know, we also, you know, you always talk about the the offense for Denver 2012 through 14 and the record-setting numbers, but it was the game management and the impressive play of the defense that won that team its Super Bowl in the last decade. So a, a guy who played, who was a major contributor, and will, I mean, imagine now, again, not what he was in 2015, but still it's going to be Von Miller behind Aaron Donald, and that's going to be frightening for so many defenses. So in one in the span of a week, the Cardinal, or in the span of a few days, the Cardinals lose, and they're no longer undefeated, and now they're only a game, I believe, a game ahead of the Rams, and now Von Miller is behind Aaron Donald. So that's huge. Speaking of huge moves, although unfortunately this is a, a really tough one to, to see, Jameis Winston done for the year. The Saints still do defeat the Buccaneers by a score of 36-27. to 27. Uh, Tom Brady throws the pick six late. Give uh, Trevor Simeon a lot of credit for keeping them in that game and, and helping them pull out the win. But... 
Uh, Winston out for most of that game. I don't know what their future is at quarterback. I don't know if they go for well, the near the near future at least with uh, Simeon or Taysom Hill. Ian Book is on the roster. I would say they'd probably go with Simeon at this point. But I will tell you, the Saints have certainly far exceeded my expectations after Drew Brees' retirement. And I know Drew Brees was not was far from peak form last year, especially in the postseason, but it's still a team that reached the playoffs last year, and I thought they would be downgraded significantly at quarterback by, by having watched Jameis Winston throw pick after pick after pick in Tampa Bay. That being said, he's kind, he was kind of the polar opposite this year of what he was in Tampa in that he the yardage numbers were a lot lower, I would say, than his 2019 year in Tampa Bay where he threw 5,000 yards, but he threw for 35 touchdowns and 30 picks. He kept the turnovers very low, and, and many a time he would throw under 200 yards a game, but throw a few touchdowns and avoid interceptions, avoid fumbles, avoid turnovers. He did. He became a game manager and did a very good job of it for the Saints this year. So that's a huge loss, a much bigger loss than I ever would have imagined. But uh, Simeon played well. Simeon played well in relief, and we'll see what happens from there. Uh, meanwhile, here's the overreaction of the week. Mike White is the future is the future of the New York Jets. Uh, a guy who threw for 400 yards. First time in a long time a Jet QB has thrown for 400 yards. And probably the first time a Jet fan has really had any hope since, uh, like significant hope just from watching a game as opposed to just from the draft. Maybe since uh, maybe since Ryan Fitzpatrick was at quarterback. Uh, Mike White, this is a guy who got his first NFL start the other day in, I believe, his fourth year somehow. And against a very, very strong... Cincinnati Bengals team, the Jets somehow came back and struck for uh, uh, double digits late, were excellent in the fourth quarter, they stayed with the Bengals for most of this game, uh, and I, I I will say I was, I didn't see any of this game, I was, I was driving home from the, an afternoon game for the 87s on Sunday. But uh, just hearing the call uh, on the radio here and hearing it, it was electric and maybe the most electric that stadium has been for uh, either team, Jet, Jets, or, Jets or Giants, really, in a while. Uh, so that that is huge. And honestly, the Bengals, up and, up to last week, the Bengals looked like a stronger team than the Colts anyway. So maybe the Jets can can beat the Colts on Thursday night football in Indianapolis with Mike White, Mike White at quarterback. And honestly, with their record, if Zach Wilson is out a few more weeks, that might not be... Uh, it, it might be a blessing in disguise because you want to see what you can get out of Mike White. I like more what I've seen from Mike White or what I've heard from Mike White than what I've seen or heard from Zach Wilson so far this year. And that, that's saying something with the limited amount of playing time comparatively uh, comparative uh, comparatively between the two of them so uh, let's see what Mike White has let's see if it's not he's not just a one-week wonder because he could be the future of the franchise the Bengals have a good defense okay 
he he won a shootout with Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase with with career record numbers. It's very possible that Mike White is the future of the New York Jets. Back to injuries, though. Derrick Henry will have foot surgery. He'll be out for the year. I would still say it is the Tennessee Titans division to lose because Ryan Tannehill is a good is a good quarterback with or without Ryan, with or without Derrick Henry. They still have Brown. They still have uh, Julio Jones, uh, and and they still have a good defense. Not to mention the Texans are a very weak team. The Jaguars are a very weak team. The Colts have underperformed. But this does open the door for the Indianapolis Colts, who have played better in the last few weeks. They lost in overtime to the Titans, 34-31 at home. But the fact they even played that well shown, shows significant signs of improvement and maybe significant signs of improving health for Carson Wentz and uh, and uh, maybe Quentin Nelson. But the uh, that... that there is more pressure on the Colts, obviously, to beat the Jets in Indianapolis on Thursday night football. And you have to at least get back into it if you're the Colts with, with the best running back since since Marshawn Lynch retired. best uh, At least best pure rushing back. Because Christian McCaffrey's a great two-way back. Alvin Kamara's a great two-way back. But the best pure power runner since Marshawn Lynch retired out for the year. Sunday night football, uh, the Vikings. Uh, the Vikings really blew this game with the Cowboys because Cooper Rush played well, but without Dak Prescott, as good as their receiving core is, as good as their backs are, the Vikings had a great opportunity opportunity to win this game. I mentioned during uh, after the draft that the Vikings did not draft their needs, did not draft a, a strong a strong enough defense that was horrible last year despite record numbers for their offense because their secondary could not tackle. That was their biggest concern, I think. Their secondary could not make a tackle. That's actually the same that's actually the same thing with I'm gonna mention with the Giants in a second against the, the Chiefs where they could not they just did a horrible job of tackling. Secondary did a horrible job of tackling especially Harrison Smith on the Wilson touchdown early in the game where he just got it turned around. He looked like AJ, you could say he, looked, he got turned around, but he looked like AJ Green, honestly, trying to, or quote unquote, trying to catch that ball from Kyler Murray at the end of the game. I didn't know what happened there. I don't know what happened with Breland when he dropped what what is a surefire interception and allowed Amari Cooper to, to make the catch pretty similar to that of Jermaine Curse. You might remember, you really you'll remember Malcolm Butler's pick, but a lot of people forget because of that, the insane catch that Jermaine Curse made in the Super Bowl against the Patriots for Seattle that took it down to the four-yard line. It, it was reminiscent of that, reminiscent of the Antonio Freeman catch on Monday Night Football. You know, that he did what? That, that one. The, the Vikings missed a, a big opportunity in this game with Dak Prescott out and likely to be back next week. Monday Night Football, Giants lose 20-17 in Kansas City. They lose Sterling Shepard with a quad injury. We're not sure for how long. The Giant defense was very strong, and I, and I will say that's... And I will say that it, that is even considering the, the Chiefs' struggles this year and how they had played in the previous week, only scoring three against the Titans. The Giants' defense was very good. They stopped the deep ball. They had a great game plan to stop the deep ball. 
They they really really limited Travis Kelsey. They contained Hill, but the Kansas City run game was very good. Mahomes did a decent enough job of throwing short. Terrence Gore had a great game, but the Chiefs again did not produce much offensively, which is the reason that I'm uh, besides Jordan Love being out, but is the reason that I'm uh, even considering the Chiefs could win against the Packers on Sunday. But the, the, the problem with the Giants was that their offense was weak for most of this game. Uh, there was the Jones pick early after the pick of Mahomes in the end zone on the early drive. It might have been the opening drive. They, 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 they ran the ball well at times with Devontae Booker. But again, the Giants... Missed a big opportunity. Missed a big opportunity to get back into it and to improve upon their season after a surprising win against Carolina. They would have gotten to within two games of 500, and and now the Chiefs go to four and four. So a, a tough loss for the Giants, and that should be that 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 probably puts a stamp on their season. And and again, you can't make excuses, but it did not help that joe judge said that apparently there were communication issues there was a some something wrong with his headset and with uh, with uh, radio uh, with uh, with radio discussion with the offense with other coaches etc cetera, etc cetera. and it also does not help that as bad as a as bad a team the giants have been over the last 5 years they really might be the most injury prone team in football losing I mean, you remember the, the game a few years ago where they lost Beckham, Marshall, and I believe Shepard, Brandon Marshall and Shepard for the year, all in the same game. And then this year, I mean, Saquon Barkley has been so injury-prone. You have Kadarius Toney, who has been outstanding at times, but has been hurt. You have Shepard, who's been the heart and soul of the organization, for the last few years, last couple of years at least, and he's out. I mean, Evan Ingram, Evan Ingram has been out at times. That's really a team that whose skill, whose skill players have been so injury prone for so long. Not an excuse whatsoever for their play, but it is absolutely true. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, the one big story this week, the huge story this week that that came out. I believe today, if not, well, well, yeah, it was today or this morning, Henry Ruggs, well, the small part of it is that he was released by the Raiders, but Henry Ruggs was released by the Raiders because he was charged with driving under the influence this morning at approximately 3.40 a.m. Pacific Standard Time in Las Vegas, charged with a DUI. I believe his girlfriend was in the car with him. Ruggs was uh, killed a 23-year-old woman and her dog. There's unfortunately there TMZ actually got a hold of a a video of it looked like rugs just kind of looking on. There's nothing you could really do. The the car was in flames. It was a horrific horrific accident. And rugs was driving pretty much an unheard of, at least on a road, number of 156 miles an hour at 3.40 in the morning in Las Vegas. 
he was more than twice the legal limit of uh, 0.08. I, I really don't understand how you could possibly be that dumb. I know that, I believe I saw a statement from the victim's family that, that said, you know, Henry Ruggs, you know, we don't, something like we don't hate him, he, he made a mistake. And that's true. That is very true. We all make mistakes, but I, I, I mean, the fact that you pour on, you're in Las Vegas, it's 3.40 in the morning, you shouldn't even be, at, shouldn't even be out at 3.40 in the morning, uh, especially if you have made a commitment to your team, 156, nobody goes 156 miles an hour, and to be well over twice the legal limit is ridiculous, because when you commit such actions, it's so often it is not you that is hurt by it. It's it's all the people around you, and and an innocent bystander can be taken out. And and so it's something that's really hard, especially in a year that has been so tough for the Raiders with uh, Gruden. It's it's really, re I mean I, I've said this word so many times on the podcast when off field, off court, off ice things happen, but really, it really is disappointing to, to see that sort of immaturity and irresponsibility. I know people always talking about talk about holding athletes to a higher standard, maybe higher than it perhaps should be, with making people role models as opposed to, you know, world leaders or or first responders, or something like that, but you can't you can't possibly be that dumb, that irresponsible. It's horrible. It's it's absolutely terrible. I don't care how young you are. You can't you can't possibly be that oblivious to to the things around you. That's a, I guess I guess that's also a message for it's not even just a football thing it's just a general thing. You can't possibly be that oblivious to or, or to what other to what can happen to other people when when you uh, commit such dumb actions just dumb actions. A couple more things uh, hockey wise I want to discuss before we go. Here's another stupid thing, and uh, it, it does also involve a bystander, but a bystander who was complicit, and that is Joel Quenville. Joel Quenville steps down as head coach of the Florida Panthers after being accused of covering up uh, former assistant coach, uh, Chicago Blackhawks assistant coach Brad Aldrich's sexual assault against uh, AHL player Kyle Beach. Beach finally came out and revealed that he was the player who accused Aldrich of sexual assault. Uh, Quenville was the head coach of the Blackhawks at the time. He has decided to step down after meeting with Commissioner Bettman in New York. Thank goodness. Glad that uh, he is holding himself accountable, even if it was perhaps at the mercy of the commissioner, knowing he'd be punished anyway. On the other hand, Jets, Winnipeg Jets general manager and then Blackhawks GM 
Uh, Kevin Cheveldayoff will will not face any supplemental discipline. I, I couldn't possibly tell you whether he knew. I couldn't even really tell you. What, well, by Quenville resigning, I would assume that he knew. But I couldn't possibly tell you what went on in that meeting room. Who actually knew? I can't. I I can't possibly tell you that that Chevel Dayoff or, or Rocky Wirtz uh, knew about what had happened. But I I mean it's understandable that the suspicion is strong. But if the NHL has not found any evidence suggesting that, then I I suppose. It makes sense for him to keep his job. There must not have been enough evidence of them knowing. So that's that, and at least for now, the matter the matter is settled. But what is important is that Kyle Beach was finally comfortable enough to to come out and admit that he was the victim. Because this person, because he had been kept, his name had been kept anonymous for so long. Uh, a courageous act. It's it. It cannot possibly be, possibly be easy to be ostracized like that, kept in the dark. So I, a real credit to him. Two more things. One, uh, Jonathan Drewen has unfortunately been taken to the hospital after being hit in the head with a puck. They're not sure as to his condition. I don't believe it's too serious, fortunately. Uh, but it's obviously especially poor timing when you consider that he left the team with anxiety issues in April of last year. So this obviously cannot uh, help his health in the first place. But also the fact that he had only played for you know a couple of weeks in his return. Just really, really tough timing. The Montreal Canadiens, just hockey-wise, difficult for them. They are in last place after reaching the Stanley Cup final last year. Really letting Philip Deneau walk, not matching his offer sheet from the Kings. Letting Corey Perry walk, Eric Stahl walk, even though they are you know, older, really may have been a mistake, but Carey Price's absence also makes a huge difference. William Carlson out four to six weeks for Vegas with a broken foot. Team's all-time leading scorer, so crucial to their operation. That's going to be a big difference, although they are, of course, a very deep team. Vegas entering Wednesday, sixth in the Pacific, with eight points, three back of Nashville for the second wild card. That does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for staying with us for a year and hopefully longer. We'll see how long this journey goes. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for listening to this week's edition of Sports in the Waiting Room.